Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, Jack Spearco here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 522. And what is today? Today is Friday. That means it's listener call in Friday, but you know what I really mean. It is October 1st. October. Let's see, we get October, and then we get November, and at the end of November we have Thanksgiving, and then we have Christmas and New Year's, and it's next year already. And it'll be cold. Winter's coming. I keep telling you guys winter's coming. Time is marching on. Is it working for you or against you? It's up to you. You do a little bit every day, and the incremental effect works for you. You do nothing every day, and the incremental effect works against you. We do not have to be prepared for everything overnight, but we should be doing one tiny little thing toward our preparedness on a daily basis. And it will be amazing when you look back a year from now where you've gotten to. Or you will do nothing and you'll look back a year from now and you'll think, damn, I haven't gotten anywhere. You don't want the second one. Regret sucks. Uh, but, yeah, today is not just October 1st. It is listener call on Friday, so I have your calls. Uh, we're up to about a week ago. I'm catching up on the backlog now. Uh, but keep the calls coming, 866-65-THINK, and you'll get your call on a show like this. I may double up on these a couple weeks just because there's so many calls, and I actually really love doing these shows. These shows take more work, and there's no doubt about that. There's much more work to do a show like this than the email and uh, uh, feedback shows or doing a, sh a standalone show. But you know what? It's worth it because you guys become part of the show, and that's really important to me. Before we take your questions, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, ready-made resources. What more can you ask from an organization for their name to tell you exactly what they provide? That's what ready-made resources does. They provide you all the resources you need ready-made for your prepping needs. Everything from food to gardening tools to 12-volt products to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, what am I looking for? Solar systems, uh, wind systems. They have an amazing catalog you should download. Check out ready-made resources. Really a top-notch sponsor that's had our back for a long time. Uh, next up today, Western Botanicals. If you want, To be able to take care of yourself in an environment where maybe healthcare is not available. If you want to be able to take care of yourself so that you're not as reliant on healthcare by using preventative means, then learning about herbal medicine is a great way to do that, and being your own doctor is a great way to do that. Uh, Western Botanicals does not offer miracle cures or miracle this or diet loss that or stay healthy forever by taking one pill. What they offer is proven historically uh, used herbs and herbal preparations that are available for your use that empower you to better your own health. And that's why they're a sponsor. Because if they had a miracle product that guaranteed, I wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't be a sponsor. And what's great about Western Botanicals is they have all these great preparations they've put together for you. But they also have a catalog of raw herbs and materials for building your own stuff that is just unequaled as far as anything I've ever seen. 
So whether you're a do-it-yourself herbologist, uh, whether you're a professional herbologist, or whether you're just looking for something to maybe uh, help you starve off the uh, common cold or flu in flu season, Western Botanicals has what you need. Check them out. Remember also, they have a preferred membership. It's $50 a year. You get 25% off everything. If you join the Member Support Brigade, which is also $50 a year, you get that for free. So they're a great supporter of the show. Uh, next up, remember to connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. You're listening to this show today. You're thinking, man, Jack does a great Friday show, right? I, I don't know what you're thinking for real. Just kidding, just kidding there. But you're listening to this. You're thinking, Jack did this show today. Well, as I said in yesterday's show, no, I didn't do this show uh, uh, today. I didn't do it yesterday. I did it the day before. Uh, knocked out three shows on Wednesday to make sure that you would have a show this Friday. So where am I right now? Well, uh, depending on what time of day on Friday you downloaded this, I'm somewhere in the Washita Mountains, probably up at my bug out location. Maybe walking my dog three or four miles up around the backside of the mountain with uh, the vacation dogs, which are my neighbors, German Shepherds, that like to go with us. Or I might be hanging out with a listener down in Hot Springs having a beer at one of the local pubs or something like that. But I am gone. And what that means is I'm going to be up there, unlike the last trip where I had to put the deer feeder together, haul it down to the spot, fill it up, and I really worked my butt off. Uh, I don't have a lot to do other than check on the feeder and fill it up. That's really why I'm going. So I'm taking some stuff with me. I'm going to do some video up there on my own, some reviews. So I'm going to have a lot on YouTube. So it's a long way around saying subscribe to the YouTube channel if you have not done so, please. All right, uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And also, please consider calling 866-65-THINK, not just for a show like today, but for episode 550, where I want you guys to be the entire show. Listen to the one-year anniversary show. Link in today's show notes so you can get a feel for that. But tell me what prepping and the survival podcast has meant for you. If you're listening to this somewhere way out in the future, and we've already done episode 550, save that call for another time. All right, let's go ahead and take your first call. We really have some great ones today. Hey, Jack. With winter season approaching, I was wondering if you could do um, – I, I had some questions about water storage in a bug-out bag, bug-out vehicle. Our average temperature here is about 10 degrees between day and night. doesn't usually get um, above freezing during the winter. So how would you go about storing water? I hear that storing water filters is also not a good idea because they tend to crack due to residual water left inside them. But um, any any advice for storing water in your vehicle in the winter? Well, I only know one answer to that, and it's an easy answer, and I don't know if you're going to like it, but it is that um, in your situation as you move into your winter months where you're going to have sub-freezing temperatures, if you leave water in your car, it's going to freeze and it's going to be useless to you while you're there. So you need to make sure that your water is easily accessible. Um, if you're using canteens, something like the GI two-quart canteens that, that have the uh, molly clips that can go on the outside of it. If you're using like a jerry can or something like that, a little more practical for a vehicle so you can carry, I mean, you carry a lot more. So um, you might have a couple bottles but or canteens, but you also might have a, a big uh, jug, at least I do. Then what you need to do is keep that stuff where it's easily accessible. And when you uh, drive your vehicle home at night, you bring it in the house. And when you go back to leave and go somewhere else, you take it with you in your car. And um, it probably won't freeze up on you if you go to the store or something like that. You're in there for an hour or two. It might get a little ice around it or whatever. Uh, but, you know, water tastes good when it's cold. Uh, overnight, you just can't leave it there. 
if you work eight hours and it's very, very cold during the day, odds are it's going to freeze up in the car and you're going to need to bring it into work with you, or at least some of it into work with you would be another way to look at it. And then, uh, you know, take your larger container out with you uh, at the house. About the only way you're going to pull it off. I don't know of any kind of um, consumable, uh, good-tasting, healthy, safe antifreeze that you can add to water that human beings consume without dying other than um, alcohol. I mean, if you're, you know, using, if your water consisted of uh, 100 proof vodka, it takes a lot for that to freeze up at all. Uh, but that's not going to get you what you need in a survival situation. Maybe a little bit of barter action, but it ain't a replacement for water, as we all know. So that's the only thing I know that you could do. You could probably rig something up to provide some level of secondary heating. Uh, but you're going to draw from your battery to do that. You're probably going to end up with a dead battery in no time flat in those harsh environments. Uh, cold weather is hard on batteries. It's not just hard on everything else. So the only thing you really can do with this to do it right and to make sure that you have water with you is to maybe carry a little bit less water in the winter than you do in the summer, which is reasonable to do, but make sure you're taking that stuff out of your vehicle whenever you leave it. That's the only way you're going to pull it off, man. Sorry there's not an easier or a better answer. That is an easy one, but there's not a better one that I know of. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Uh, my name's Chris, and uh, I just want to thanks for all you do on your show. And, and uh, I was on my way home this morning, and saw a bunch of horse apples on the trees, and I'd heard about people using the boat art tree as hedgerows uh, long ago, and I had four and a half acres, and I was concerned planting those along the, the uh, edges of my property, and wanted to know uh, what you thought about that, and maybe um, how to uh, how to grow the trees, do I just throw the horse apples on the ground at, at regular intervals, or, or uh, how can I uh, help that along? Appreciate uh, appreciate your show. Thank you. Well, you picked a great time to answer this, ask this question because I actually have a really good answer for you right now with getting horse apple seeds out of the horse apples. I, I like I say often that on with this show with research, anything and everything about prepping survival wilderness skills, I'm always reading or watching everything I can to absorb as much information as I can and to go out and test and see if it works. Well, recently I read something about horse apples or I saw something about horse apples or it was on television or it was on YouTube or something. I don't remember which one, so I can't give credit for it because I can't remember. I, but I remember what you do. Horse apples actually can provide nutrition for human beings, and that leads us to how you can plant them very effectively. Turns out, if you take a horse apple and you soak it in water for a while, the horse apple will expand and all that sticky gooey crap that holds it together will come apart and the seeds will come out and float to the top. You can then take those seeds out and those seeds are actually edible. I also remember from what I read or watched or whatever it was that they don't taste very good but they are uh, edible. And that's a good thing to know. That's harvesting a resource most people would not with at least some level of nutrition. But if you wanted to plant them, here's your way to do that. Now, you want to go ahead and get yourself a, a pile of them, soak them in a big vat somewhere, uh, wait for the seeds to come to the top, plant your seeds, start your little seedlings, and put them out along your hedgerows. As far as using them for that, they're beautiful for that. I've been to some farms in the, in the uh, kind of the, the Midwestern regions where, they, where it's, they're 100-year-old hedgerows out of these things, and they're pretty dadgone amazing. And it would be all get out to get through one. I mean, it is truly a living fence. 
It's not a great nutritional product in spite of what I just said, but pretty easy to do from what I understand. I know that it doesn't take, it, you could probably do your idea. You could probably take a bunch of them and throw them on the ground and, and just be happy and they'll probably come up. And here's why I can tell you that is, I have four of the damn things growing in my backyard. Two of them are growing in flower pots and my wife's like, don't cut them down for like the first year, right? And then, like, I'm like, this is a tree, and it's gonna, you know, she's like, no, oh, I like it, it's pretty. Oh, okay, fine, because they got those waxy. And she's like, there's thorns on there, it hurts, get rid of it. So, uh, after a year, it's completely taken over a huge flower pot, both of them have. And I've just been they've pruning them to the ground, and they keep coming back. I also have two that are growing down in the, the a- absolute opposite corner of my yard, down by the cable pedestal, uh, where I have it kind of rocked in for low maintenance, and, uh, You know, they grew in rocks that were blocked with a reed barrier, a weed barrier. So, I never had any horse apple in the backyard. I've uh, never brought any of them home here. I don't really like the damn things. They're sticky and gooey and nasty. And yet I have four of these trees that have decided to grow in my backyard from either birds dropping them in turds or from the wind blowing the seeds after the uh, the horse apples come apart or whatever. So if they'll propagate themselves in my backyard like that in not the most hospitable environments, if you just went and got a few buckets of them and tossed them around, you're probably going to work out. But if you wanted to actually cultivate them, you can get those seeds out, and it would be good to know that in a really dire situation there is an edible component. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is CJ from Wisconsin. I have a question concerning credit cards. Uh, my younger brother is 19 and in college, and he wants to get a credit card so he can formulate some sort of credit history. Like many people, he's realized that while well, he's just wasting money every month on that apartment when he can like buy a house for almost the same price every month, and he obviously wants to do that. Uh, we were having a conversation about it the other day, and I was telling him how you probably shouldn't get a credit card. It's a bad thing. But I really didn't have any good counter on a good way to get credit besides a credit card. So what would you recommend for someone in his situation? I'd really not like to see him fall into the trap of credit cards. So if you have any information on that, that would be awesome. Thank you. I don't know, man. I think I'm going to have to call, how do I buy a house without a credit card? The question that won't die. Um, let's look about... A credit rating. Let's think about what a credit rating is. A credit rating is something that allows you to borrow money. Now, since borrowing money and going into debt in general is a bad idea, how important should our credit rating really be at a very, again, I'm being honest when I say a surface level, just to, without thinking deeply, and the, and the answer is not very important at all. Because the big thing with a credit rating is we can go into stores and buy couches for no money down and no interest and no payments for 12 months. And we can get a MasterCard and a Visa card and a gold MasterCard and a purple plum card and a black this card and all that other great stuff. That's basic credit. We can go to any store and get their store financing and you know basically destroy our lives with that kind of credit. The question, though, how do I buy a house is legitimate. To me, there are two types of debt that I think makes sense, that I'm willing to go into. And one, I'm not really willing to anymore, but I understand people that do. And the other one, um, I may never go into it again, but if I find the right property and I need to move or whatever, I'll do. So the first one is buying a car, and the second one is buying a house. Dave Ramsey would tell you a house is the only acceptable one. I understand why people have car payments. Now, I don't understand why people have $800 car payments. 
I think you are a retard if you have an $800 car payment. I really do. If you have an $800 car payment right now and I just offended you, I'm sorry. You're a retard. Because I've had $850 house payments. So you just got to look at value ratios there. But people that go out and they buy a $20,000 to $30,000 vehicle, put some decent money down on it and pay it off and say, you know, I'm going to finance it for five years, I'm going to hedge my bet, and that way if something happens I can make the lower payment, but I'm going to you know, do a payment and a half or whatever and pay this thing off in three years, two and a half years. And that's what when we financed vehicles, the most recent vehicle I bought, I paid cash for, but when we financed that's what we've always done. We've always paid them off about a year and a half early, and, and that works. And that'll, if you're planning on making an additional payment, then you're obviously making the base payment something you can definitely afford. All right. So then we have to say, well, how do I arrange so that I can leverage debt that's decent, you know, healthy debt? Which is what it's either an, this kid either has an excuse because he just wants a freaking credit card, he's going to get himself into trouble with it, or he's asking a legitimate question. Let's answer the legitimate question because I can't answer to, to, to stupidity. I really can't. And you can expect a 19-year-old to do some stupid things or a 20-year-old to do some stupid things. I did. I'm sure most of us did. Um, but the legitimate answer is you go to the bank, and if you want to start building credit with a bank, you put money in the bank. You put as much money as you can possibly put in that bank so you have at least $1,000. And then you go to that bank and you say, I'd like a personal loan for $1,000. And they loan you $1,000 and you pay it back in six months using the money you already had. In fact, you take their $1,000 and you put it back into their bank and you do direct draft rate out and you pay it off that way and you earn their trust. Or you get to the point where you're ready to buy a car and you go to a bank, a bank that writes its own loans, and you buy a car with that bank. And now you have credit with the bank. You make sure that the bank you're using to do this is a bank that underwrites its own mortgages. And when you're ready for a mortgage, you go back to that bank, and as long as you save up 10 to 20% of the purchase price of your home, and you don't have any bad credit, and you have a relationship with that bank, and you have a solid down payment, like I said, you go there and you get a loan. And then the only debt you ever carry in your life is mortgage on property, which is the only good debt that I know of. And that's it. And you can make it hard, and you can say that some ass clown somewhere said something about something, or you can accept the fact that every day Americans get loans from banks that don't own credit cards. And if you don't believe me, check out Dave Ramsey's website about getting a mortgage without a credit card. And he's going to tell you the same thing I just did, but maybe in that particular world he has more credit. I don't know how many more times I'm going to answer this question. I almost didn't do it today, but I just feel like as long as people are asking it, I need to answer it because it's the one got you with, credit, with no credit cards. Well, how am I going to get a house? Go to the bank and get a loan. Don't go to the bank with a 2% or a 3% down payment for a loan. They will not give you one because you do not have reasonable consideration for their risk. If you go, if you've ever bought a house before and you show up with 10% and you, you were good on your last one, they're going to be good. Your first house, you may have to save up 20%. Now, some people say, oh my God, that's prohibitive. Not if you're smart. Not if you're freaking smart. If you're renting for 600 and your house payment's going to be a thousand, and in a lot of people, that's what it's going to be. They say, well, it's going to be $600. Well, not when you add property taxes. Not when you add insurance. Okay? All of a sudden, the $611 of principal and interest is a grant. So your total house payment is going to go up when you buy a house in 99% of situations. 
If you can't save $400 over your current rent, you're probably not ready to buy. $400 a month, that's $4,800 a year, right? That's $16,000 in four years. That's an entry-level $90,000 house with a 20% down payment and no PMI on the loan. And any bank anywhere that underwrites its own loans, if you haven't been behaving stupidly, if you show up with a 20% down payment, will give you a mortgage right now, today, assuming the property you're purchasing is not overpriced, assuming it appraises properly. And if it doesn't appraise properly, and it doesn't pass inspection and all that jazz, you don't want to buy it. That's how you do it. It is that simple. Don't try to make it any harder. And that's the smart way to buy a home. And if you want a half a million dollar home, buy your ass a $90,000 house first. Improve it. Build your credit by paying your mortgage. Make some profit on your home. Save up more money. Increase your income. And when you can responsibly buy that bigger house, then go do it. There it is. Can't do any better for you. Let's take another question. Hi, uh, it's Jason from Frisco, Texas. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for all that you do. And I know that it takes a lot of time and effort to uh, to do everything that you do for us, and I just want you to know that it is appreciated. Uh, my question is about 72-hour kits or go bags. Um, I'm in outside sales and have a lot of windshield time driving around Texas and Oklahoma, uh, and I don't have any problem carrying a 72-hour kit with me at that point, but occasionally I do take sales trips to uh, other states, um, sometimes by aircraft, and um, some of the supplies that are in my kit may not be legal in those states. Uh, such as like a machete or survival knife, uh, even a handgun, which I do carry on me. Um, those items would leave a hole in my 72-hour bag, and I really would like to have a 72-hour kit with me on the road. What would you do in situations like this where we would actually have to leave um, our state or our uh, surroundings due to our jobs but still maintain a, a preparedness with a 72-hour bag? Again, thanks for everything that you do. God bless. Well, there's no simple answer to this because it varies so much based on the state you're going to. Let's start with a handgun. Number one, your handgun doesn't belong in your bug-out bag. It belongs on your person. I'm not saying you keep your handgun in your bug-out bag. I'm just saying it for other people that may not get that because based on the way you just described it, I'm thinking you do that. But, folks, handguns don't go in bug-out bags. They go on you unless, unless you live in a place where you can't carry but you're allowed to keep it in a bag in your vehicle. If you keep a gun in a bag in your vehicle, then that damn bag better come out of your vehicle every time you exit that vehicle, unless you're going into a place where you can't take the gun in with you, and then you better have it locked securely in your trunk or somewhere else out of the way. It better not be sitting on your back seat, because then you're an idiot and you're going to cause us all trouble. Uh, again, not saying the caller did that. I'm just I'm putting that out as a you know public service announcement. Um, when I travel to a place that has a reciprocity agreement, um, I have a hard case. And I put my handgun in there uh, with the accessories, and I check it as baggage. And when I get where I'm going, I put it back on my person. Okay, If I'm going somewhere without a reciprocity agreement where I cannot carry my gun on me, uh, and I cannot carry my gun in my vehicle, let's say somewhere like New York City, a cesspool for uh, anti-gun laws, then I just don't bring a gun, and I go unarmed. And I don't like it, and I feel naked, but that's the way that it is. Okay. In those situations, I try to carry something that I can, you know, can uh, utilize. Um, 
as a secondary means of defense and my number one item that I like to carry for secondary defense and I usually carry with me at all times and in fact I have a small one on my key ring at all times is pepper spray. It is not 100% but it's a hell of a lot better than nothing and I think it's a great secondary line of defense. So there's how you handle the armament part. The knives, machetes, hatchets, I have all that stuff too and I dig it and I like it but when it comes right down to it I can do most of what I need to do in any kind of a, a you know MacGyver type situation that I could be in with a good solid quality Swiss Army knife. We actually have some pretty cool TSP ones coming in the gear shop soon. Really, really cool uh, Swiss Army trekkers that are going to be black and branded with TSP. You might want to check out the uh, gear shop's uh, Facebook page to see that. I'll put a link to where you can look at those today uh, in the show notes. But um, a good Swiss Army knife, and there's I don't know if any 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 state in the United States of America where you can't carry a decent Swiss Army knife with a good blade and a bottle opener, screwdriver, a good saw. You want one with the saw, uh, things like that. Um, so you take what you can, and with the things you can't take, you adapt down. Now, sure, I can chop with a machete, and I'd rather have a machete, but I can cut with the saw on a Swiss Army knife. And I could do a lot that I would normally chop. It might take me longer, but I can get it done. And I would also say, think about what you can do with micro kits and mini kits for those traveling situations. Um, John McCann has a great book on putting together survival kits. It does a lot of mini kits. You might want to check that out. It's called Build the Perfect Survival Kit. Uh, it's a great resource for things like that. Um, I mean, that's that's it. You just can't have... The same bag that you keep in, you know, the locked toolbox of your truck or, uh, you know, the, the the trunk of your car when you get up on an airplane. And everything you check ends up costing you money anymore. Now, I don't fly that much anymore, so I look at it this way. If I'm going to a state that has reciprocity, like Florida, and I have to check an extra piece of luggage so that if somebody bothers me, I can put a hole in them, I'll pay the bill. I'll pay the bill. Little tip for you guys for air travel. Really great tip, honestly. There's an airline called AirTran. If they are flying where you are going, you might want to consider taking them. Even if you end up paying a little bit more, let me tell you how to fly really, really in style with a discount airline. AirTran has a, an area of their aircraft they call business class. It is equivalent to first class on any airline I've ever been on, unless it's been flying internationally. All right, so if it's flying over to Europe or something, that's a totally different level of service. But domestically, it might as well be first class on American. It is very expensive unless you don't do it until the day you leave. So you book your flight, you go online, you can generally upgrade between $40 to $60 a seat to upgrade to business class on Air Tran. I shouldn't have given those away, so nobody's going to get my seat by doing this. Because I only have like six first class seats to do this with. And you get upgraded for that little bit of money. When you do that, you can check two bags at no additional charge as well. And when you show up at the airline, if you do have to check baggage and you do have to go through kind of the, the rigmarole instead of just, you know, self-check or whatever because of something special, you go right to the front of the line. So I know you didn't ask that one, but trust me, if you're flying places, if AirTran goes there, and if you fly, like, to Atlanta, and that's a great hub for them, it is, to me, the best way to fly. You get a drink for free, you get extra service, you get a great big wide seat, and uh, their prices are generally a little bit under a competing airline. So even though I might end up spending more by being on AirTran with this little upgrade thing, the fact that I don't pay for the bag, it all equals out. 
It all equals out, and I'm not sitting back in 21, you know, B in the middle between two other big guys like myself. Awesome, awesome way to do it. Doesn't always work out, but if you're quick, if you check in online the morning of your flight, you can upgrade at least if you're like a connection, you can't do the second one, but you can do the first one, and you can do the second one as soon as you get to the airport. It's extra money, but it's worth it. And uh, there you go. I don't know why, but that one just came out with that answer. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Dale calling from Pennsylvania. I just listened to your show about bugging in versus bugging out, and you mentioned having uh, evacuation routes prepared. And uh, one of the things that I thought of, uh, or the question that I had, was what do you think of uh, limited access highways as um, part of an evacuation route? Uh, where I live, I live within 15 minutes of the Turnpike in Pennsylvania and within 20 minutes of Route 81. Both would make good evacuation routes as long as they weren't clogged um, by, you know, everybody else trying to use them. So just want to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, first, you must live damn close to where I did. Uh, I live down closer to 78 in the Turnpike, but uh, if you're 81 in the Turnpike, you're up there around Jim Thorpe. That's a, just a beautiful area, and we used to go up there a lot when I lived there. Um I'll tell you what. Here's here's the way I see it. Um, there's a there's a lot going on here, so it's a little bit more difficult to answer. Number one, secondary uh, routes are important to know and have planned and be ready to use. I always say, and maybe I need to do another show on documentation again. Part of the documentation package in your vehicles is maps with directions to three destinations and three routes to each destination. In three totally different ways. In your case, probably west, north, and south. Because you don't want to go east from where you are. That's Jersey in New York City. That's the last direction you want to be traveling to get the hell out of Dodge unless you have no other choice. And you're going east and turning north or east and turning south or something like that. Um, so definitely yes. But here's the other side of that. In a panic, a panicked evacuation, a couple things happen. One, the government often blocks off Uh, secondary routes, which is just dumb. Now, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to prevent more people from coming in through the sides, and that causes actually even more backup. But to turn them around and run them all 100, uh, you know, 100% outbound as well would be a smarter way. So you have to realize that that could happen to you, that the secondary route you have planned could end up being blocked off, and you could be forced onto a major artery. Um, but this is why I always say, Bug out planning is about being ready to go before everybody else is. You have to be willing, if you want to bug out successfully, to keep your finger on the pulse of society and look at something and go, this is heading downward fast. We need to get, and if you leave, and it's like there's a storm coming, for instance, and you think it's going to be really bad, you're going to need to get out because of it. This is just one example. Um... And you leave and the storm misses you. You go back and you took a two or three day vacation. Oh well. You have to have that attitude. So things like a pandemic increasing in severity and things like that. You have to make, if you want to get out successfully, you have to make that decision to go before everybody else does. Now, let's say we ever get into some kind of cataclysmic event going on where the government announces that everybody panics. You're stuck in that panic. And you got to deal the best you can. And knowing secondary routes may be a great way to do that. In fact, knowing ways to get onto those secondary routes that are not commonly known, like where you live, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of uh, like four-wheeler trails and stuff that a four-wheel drive pickup or a Jeep can drive on. And some of them can take you several miles and dump you out onto some secondary roads. 
Those are some really damn good things to know. Have marked on a GPS, have marked on maps, and be prepared to use them because just because the cops are blocking, you know, secondary route seven or whatever, uh, right where it gets off of the highway doesn't mean that they have people posted on it every mile all the way up. They're preventing that offloading right at that point. They're trying to funnel the evacuation the way they want it to go. So I don't care if they want me to drive on or not. My life's at stake, and I can take a dirt trail through to a place and jump onto a secondary artery and avoid all of that mess and get the hell out of there. I'm going to do it. And the people you're going to run across when you do that are going to be people who think like you. That means they're organized and know what the hell they're doing, and they want to get the hell out of there as fast as they can. I would rather be surrounded by people like that than 4,000 million clueless people in the middle of an interstate system. So definitely know your secondary routes. Definitely have them planned. But the way you're really going to pull this off is you need to be ready to go as a first mover. You need to go when it's okay to use the highway, at least to get the first portion the hell out of where you're going. You need to go before everybody else does. And it's much easier when you have a place to go to. That's why I'm big on having a well-stocked, well-planned, well-prepared bug-out location. And this is also part, folks, this is why I'm so big on creating as much financial independence as you can. Because I don't want people in that situation thinking, if I don't go to work, they might fire me. I want people thinking I'm going to preserve the life of my, myself, my safety, and my family first. Our health, our wellness, our safety, and our lives come before anything else. And sometimes that's not an easy decision to make when you got to make the payment on the house every month. right? You don't want to lose everything you have. But there's also times, like I said, always with bug out. You bug out when your chance to survive increases by bugging out. Not because you think it's a neat thing to do. There's some serious situations that can occur that make that the case. Be prepared to go and go quickly and get out as fast as you can. That's the best advice I can give you. Secondary routes are great, but even they will plug up. So be prepared to be an early jumper. Let's take the next question. Jack, this is Jeff from St. Louis. Lost airplane on the forum. I wanted to share with you my new favorite tool store, uh-huh. Harbor Freight. I got a reciprocating saw after seeing your video on how, how well they work on cutting down small saplings and trees. It, and it was only $19 for this reciprocating saw I had a sale on. And I loved it. It works great. It's a little six-amp saw. It's not something I'm going to hand down to my grandkids probably, but, you know, for that kind of money for a new saw with a little six-month warranty or whatever, it's good enough. And it worked great. The other thing I got most recently a couple months ago was... Uh, two-cycle generator. It is 800 continuous watts, 1,000-watt peak. I gave it a torture test. It runs stuff very nice, keeps a nice steady wattage. Some cheaper generators, sometimes the light or the, the electricity flow will fluctuate. This thing runs nice and smooth, and I put a 1,000-watt blower on it, leaf blower. It ran fine. I ran it up to 1,200 watts, the high setting, and it still ran slower than if it was plugged into the wall socket, but it still ran and didn't blow the breaker. So it would be a good one to use on a maybe a small freezer or a small refrigerator to uh, as backup power, and, and when the compressor kicks on, it probably wouldn't blow the breaker. So anyway, my, my new favorite store, Harbor Freight, I had to share. Talk to you later. Bye. Hey, sorry about the second call, Jack, but I had, had to throw this in there. If I think I forgot. The two-cycle generator that I got recently, and they're running the sale again, was $89. That's pretty cheap for 800 watts of emergency power 
Well, I'll put Thank that on mainly for you guys just to get a tip from a fellow listener, but uh, I've never bought from Harbor Freight, but I get their little circular catalogs they send around all the time, and I always think about it because they do have so many things that look like, man, they're pretty cool and pretty cheap, and even if it ever breaks down, how much are you out? I mean, $19 for a reciprocating saw, um, you know, I have a DeWalt, and to me it is the best power tools made are DeWalt power tools, especially when you look at rechargeables. But they're expensive. Excuse me, they're expensive. They really are. And uh, you say, well, $19 power saw is probably going to break down eventually. Buy two of them. $40. Bucks. Buy two of them. Have one in reserve. One, two is one and one is none. My DeWalt ever does break down, and you have two cheap saws, and your saw breaks down, you're actually in better shape than me. So there's some interesting things there. The two-cycle generator for $89, bucks, I might buy two of those. I mean, what a great little device. I mean, it probably sips gasoline. It probably doesn't draw very much. Uh, having that and some stabilized fuel just to keep your deep freezer going in a short-term outage is probably a great thing. You ain't going to run a lot of the house on, on you know, 800 running watts, but uh, that will run a chest freezer, definitely. A refrigerator, like uh, he said, it's not going to kick off, but, you know, it's going to spike the, the, the wattage when it, when it kicks on the compressor and back off, but... Uh, It would probably handle it no problem, but a chest freezer, it ain't, ain't going to even breathe hard to run a chest freezer. And uh, being able to keep, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to run a compressor with a chest freezer all the time or a, a, a generator with a chest freezer all the time. If you run it a few hours here and a few hours there, man, you could milk a chest freezer along a long time. And, uh, you know, 10 gallons of gas might save you, and an $89 generator might save you $1,000 worth of meat if you keep a fully stocked chest freezer. Or it might save you a hunting season's worth of meat if you're me. And uh, there's a big advantage there. So, guys, check out Harbor Freight. Anybody that's dealt with them and bought their stuff and had good experiences, bad experiences, whatever, weigh in with a comment uh, at the blog. I also want to say this right now while I, while I got it fresh in my mind. A lot of times we do uh, a show on something, and then you guys will send me all these great pieces of advice and tips and stuff by email. Don't do that. And not that I don't want your email. Post it as a comment on the blog in the show notes because there's no way I can take all of it and regurgitate it back out in a future show. Um, it's like, hey, just wanted you to know that, hey, if you do this, it'll work. Post it as a comment because it's collective intelligence so that your other members of the Survival Podcast community can benefit from your knowledge. I will not take offense to you telling me, hey, Jack, you missed this point. You can do this. Here's another way. Man, that's awesome. That's what this show is all about. It's all about us learning from each other. So when you know something I don't, post it as a comment. Just be respectful. That's all I ask. Uh, not just to me either, to everybody else on the blog. No one insults anybody on my blog unless they're, you're allowed to insult congressmen and presidents and senators. You are not allowed to insult each other. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Phoenix. Uh, I go by AZ Guy on the forums, and I want to thank you for the great show you put out there. I've learned so much from you, and I really tip my hat to you, the way you explain things in detail. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Now, here's my question. As I said, I live in Phoenix. You know, it's a pretty tough climate here. Uh, on the west side of my property, I've got about a six-foot-high cinder block wall. It runs about 200 feet I'm just wondering what you might suggest to put there in that spot. It seems like there's probably something that goes there, but I can't think of it. Something that might do well with that kind of shade in the afternoon. So if you give me a tip, I'd certainly appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. 
Okay, well, I'm definitely not an expert about permaculture and desert regions, but I'm going to do my best for you on this one. If you've got a west wall, then odds are you've got good sunlight all day long. And then once that sun crests the sky across midpoint, you start to cast a shadow and probably, you know, as you, you're down to like your last six to seven hours of uh, sunlight during the high period when you've got, you know, 12 hours of sun, you're starting to uh, cast a complete shadow and there's going to be nothing there. So what we need is a plant that can take the full sun for half of the day, that can take the heat of the area, that can deal with the climate that you have overall, and is not going to die because it gets shade. Two plants spring to mind for me. One are figs and the other is pomegranates. Figs are going to do better for you, uh, get, especially if you buy the certain varieties of figs that are do really good in uh, desert environments. I believe Celeste is a variety of fig that should do well for you there. Uh, brown Turkey, which is a, was, came out of Texas uh, with some uh, specific breeding out of, uh, I think, University of Austin, um, or a Texas, Texas A&M, it might do well, but it's more of a, a northern and an eastern uh, variety. It seems to do better in our temperate climates. But look for any uh, traditional good desert fig. Uh, make sure you give them good soil, good amendments, good mulching, and decent irrigation. Pomegranates, everything I just said, except they're going to need more irrigation. But you should be able to do pomegranates and figs without much trouble in that environment. They're going to get plenty of, uh, of light for what they need. They might not grow as fast as something that gets more sunlight, but honestly, in your situation, that intense Phoenix sun is going to burn a lot of things if they get 100% all day long sun anyway. You also are going to have to look at, though, how much is, are they going to get in the winter sun as that sun moves lower in the sky. Is the west wall of your house, you know, like your house facing out, so you're going to cast shadows with your house back? And is it going to completely shade the area? If so, both of these plants should still do okay for you. They might lose leaves. It does actually get quite cold in the winter at certain periods in Phoenix, at least overnight. They may shed their leaves, but if you prune them, they should come back and they should do fine. Those would be the two best suggestions I could make. You might even pull off citrus. I don't know how far and if you ever dump below freezing in your area. If you do, it might be really hard. Otherwise, you may be able to pull off citrus, especially things that are a little bit easier than something like an orange, uh, like blood oranges or limes. Might do okay for you there as well. But I would start with fig and pomegranate. I think those will do fabulous for you there. Pomegranates often do well as understory, so they can deal with the shade. They love the heat. You're just going to have to keep them well hydrated. Put in some drip irrigation. Compost the hell out of the soil. Keep your mulch about four inches thick, and those two plants should do dynamite for you in that environment. Let's take another one. My name's Robert Porter, and I'm in Arlington, Texas. And uh, I don't know, you may have gotten this question before, but my family has about... 35 acres, I guess, out in East Texas somewhere, and my mother has a garden and stuff, but she is not the uh, permaculturist by any means, and I've tried to get her to do the raised beds and all this and stuff, but I was thinking more along the lines of a somewhat profitable endeavor, you know, with the land that we have, it all seems to be good land, it's somewhat 
full of clay, as uh, East Texas is. But uh, I was wondering if you had any suggestions, you know, did something good to do with the land out there. Uh, you know, moderate investments, you know, don't have a whole lot of money, but what we do have is land. And, uh, yeah, curious if you had any thoughts on that. Uh, thank you very much. We'll keep up the good work. Well, let's start out with the first thing. Based on the area code of your phone number and your statement of East Texas and your description of the property, I'm going to assume that you are somewhere between two and four hours away from this property on a daily basis. So it's not something you can just run out and take care of every day. So let's look at it with a long-term... And it's also sitting there and doing nothing for you right now. So let's look at it from a long-term food production machine type situation that requires as little maintenance as possible. I'm going to recommend two DVDs for you, and really three. The first one is Harvesting Water the Permaculture Way uh, by Jeff Lawton. And I think that is an outstanding DVD for you to watch, and I'll talk about why in just a second. The next one is um, Building a Permaculture, Building a Food Forest, also by Jeff Lawton. Those two, I think, if you watch both of those DVDs, uh, you're going to have a really good experience with going forward from here. The third one you might want to watch, it's not as important for what your situation is right now, is called An Introduction to Permaculture Design. All three are available from the Permaculture Institute in, in Australia. Uh, you can buy them online, shipping's reasonable, great DVDs. I'm going to warn you, they say they work in all, they're region free. None of them played in my DVD player on my TV set. None of them. I had to watch them all on my computer. I didn't get upset about it, I just wanted you to know before you bought them. Uh, but those three outstanding. The water of the one is the one I'm going to recommend the most, and, here's, and the food forest one, because it talks a lot about water harvesting as well. You have In East Texas, you have abundant rainfall. It doesn't seem like it, but you do. You definitely have more than we have in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and as you move out to West Texas, it's a freaking desert. But there's times of year where it seems shoddy, or, or you know, hit and miss. You also have very sandy soils in a lot of the area. You mentioned clay soil. You probably have a mixture of clay and sand. Um, that creates pools of water, and then it creates places where the water drains very quickly. That's why there's so much pine forest out there. So if you can hydrate the land and make most efficient use of your water, then you can grow anything you want from a permaculture standpoint, specifically from a perennial standpoint. So just you know, thinking off the top of my head, some of the crops that you could grow out there that would be money crops would be pecans, right? And that's a long-term investment, but I've seen pecan trees producing at five and a half to seven years, and well planted, well cared for, well mulched, you know, planted in a food forest arrangement with a lot of supporting life. You could definitely pull that off out there, and you know, planting a hundred to two hundred pecan trees and just a small portion of that. Uh, would be an awesome way to monetize the property. It's also a great nutritional product. If you ever needed to rely on it, it's there for you. But you could you could also do blueberries as an understory planting. You could do raspberries. I mean, you can do anything you want, but I would stick to perennials because you're not going to be out there tending it like a garden. But I would start with figuring out the contour lines of the land, drawing the land out, coming up with a good sketch and a good design, and putting in as much water uh, as you can. You want to find your highest point, and if you can on your highest point, you want to put a small dam or even maybe an acre dam or a half acre, quarter acre dam in, a keyhole dam. 
and you want to let that backfill into swale systems and fill other dams on the property. I try to put three or four, uh, three or four dams on this property. I try to swale the whole damn thing. And I would try to force hydrate this land with every rainfall that you get. And if you do that, you know, now we can start looking at things like in your dams, you can, you can put automated feeders in and do catfish. Right? Because we can just basically suspend what amounts to nothing more than a deer feeder on an anchored floating raft and we can have our fish fed for a month with a little solar panel and a $75 feeder and we can have farm-raised catfish. And then we can have all of these other plants to basically take care of themselves. And a system like that requires very, if you got out there once every other week, you could do everything you need to do. You're doing rough mulching, you're planting in with those pecans and in with any other kind of production tree, you're planting legume trees uh, that produce nitrogen in the soil, you're rough mulching, you're, you know, once they grow eight feet high and these, these legumes grow real fast, you know, you're cutting them off at four feet and just throwing them on the ground and letting them grow back and you're doing it over and over and over. You're going to need to watch these DVDs. I really recommend if you're going to make an investment in time, effort, and some money into this property that you give yourself a good baseline education. And those three DVDs will do it for you. You'll spend about 60 bucks to do that. I think it'll be money well spent. But I would focus first on this land that you describe with hydration. I would put as much water into it as you can. I know I already said that. I'm saying it again to drive the point home. Once you have good water, you can do anything you want. And without that, you're sunk. You're blessed to be in an area where there's plenty of rain if you channel it and harvest it properly. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Derek Sheriff here in Arizona. Thanks for asking my or answering my question recently about backyard hens. It was really helpful. Today I have a question about nickels. I buy junk silver, but I've heard about this idea of saving nickels from an article I read by James Rawls. Is this a crazy idea? I mean, after all, if I'm going to keep a certain amount of cash on hand in my home, say somewhere between, I don't know, three and $500, other than storage space, what do I have to lose by keeping that cash in the form of nickels? And on the other hand, if Mr. Rawls' predictions turn out to be correct and a secondary market for nickels does develop at some point down the road, might I have a chance to make some money? I don't know. Bottom line is... Is there any downside to hoarding nickels? And if not, is there a potential upside? Thanks again for your podcast and all you do. Out. Well, it's not crazy, but it may not be as simple as a lot of people are putting it right now. Let's take a look at what the reality is. Right now, a nickel's worth about almost 20% more than a nickel's worth in base metal. If I were to take the equivalent amount of metal to the junkyard and say, pay me for junk metal, um, $100 worth of nickels would net me about $118, $120, something like that. But we got to look at how that metal's in there. It's a little bit different than a silver coin. First of all, none of the metals that are in a nickel are anywhere near as valued by people as silver. Uh, what's a nickel made of? It's made of nickel and copper. And it's basically, a nickel's like a sandwich, You've got a mixture of nickel and copper as a as a cladding, and then the core is just a solid copper slug inside there. If you mess around with a nickel enough, you can actually get it to come apart if you're uh, if you're so inclined in in kind of a way, and you'll see that the inside is nothing but solid copper. A nickel's a big coin; it's a big hunk of copper. It really is. So since it's a big hunk of copper, it's got a lot of copper in it. Seventy five percent copper is a composition, I believe. 
But how much energy does it take to melt nickels and separate nickel from the co- the nickel nickel from the copper so that they can both be used as their raw elemental metal state? And the answer is a lot. We need to go to a premium three to four times what the coin's worth before people would see it as a, like a junk metal market, a junk silver market. Um, it's not the same as you know. 90% silver coins. Melting those down and, and creating 90% silver and using it for anything after that is really, really easy to do. Silver has a low melt temperature and uh, it's 90% silver even if you leave the other metal in it. Right? Where we don't have that with uh, nickel. You know, we have nickel and we have copper. And uh, if we uh, melt those together and combine them, we get cupro-nickel alloy, alloy, which is what most of our coins are made out of today. So is there potential there? Yes. Do you lose anything? No, not at all. You don't lose anything at all. Um, but you, you, you get a limited gain. Uh, let me give you another idea for what you could save. Pre-1982 pennies. I have a much bigger premium on them already because they're almost pure copper. They're like 95% copper. And uh, that's only the pre-82s. So 81 and back. There's actually some 82s that, that fit this mold. But you say, well, how do I how do I do that? Well, you just get a penny jar. And, and instead of putting all your pennies in there, every time you get pennies, you take all the old-looking ones, check the dates, and anything that's pre-82, you throw them in there. Uh, or, you know, when you get a roll of pennies, you go through them. And if you see an 82... I can actually tell you how to tell the difference between uh, an 82 penny, whether it's copper or whether it's not. You uh, hold it like you're going to flip a coin, you know, with your thumb off your finger, and you make sure that your fingernail kind of taps it as you flick it in the air. If it's a zinc, mostly zinc penny, um, you'll hear a ping like that. And if it's an older copper one, you won't. So there you go. I mean, it's pretty simple to do. Actually, I just said that completely backwards. A... um, a pre-82 penny, if you flick it the right way, it'll make a little ping sound. And anything after that with zinc, it's just kind of like a thud. So get yourself like a 1975 penny and keep flicking it till you can make it make that sound. And then flick a, a, a modern penny, and you'll hear the difference. And that way, if you ever have an 82 and you want to know which one it is, you can give it the flick test, and you'll know whether it's copper or zinc. Um, why do I recommend pennies over uh, nickels, even though nickels are easier? Because they're all the you know nickels are all the same. If I go, I can go to the bank and I can buy ten dollars worth of nickels a week. You know, I can buy $100 worth of nickel. I can just put it away, right? Because uh, the pennies had a much bigger premium. $100 worth of pennies right now, the copper value on those is about $240. So here's the thing. People already had started to melt pennies and things like that down, and the government passes temporary laws whenever that starts, as long as the coins are still in circulation. If you get to a point where the coin is changed, and they, 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 they make a new version of the coin because it's getting to be too expensive to produce it anymore, um, that kind of goes out the window. With pre-82 pennies, you can kind of sort of already get away with it because they made the change to a zinc uh, coin in 82, 83. Uh, but because the penny's still identical, it still looks the same, it still kind of, they, they, they kind of get upset with you if you start melting down lots of pennies. One old boy had made a machine that was like designed so you could go buy like $10,000 worth of pennies and dump them in there and it could weigh them immediately and it just sorted them. And everything that was post-82 went to one side and, and he was going to melt them down and I think he got shut down uh, because you're basically destroying U.S. currency at that point. 
But eventually you get to a point where people themselves start to pull the money out of circulation, and once that happens, the government doesn't care anymore because it's not there. Uh, that's what happened in you know 1960s after 64 when they stopped making silver coins and everybody pulled all the silver all the silver dimes and quarters and 50 cent pieces out of circulation. So for this to pay off, you have to get to a point where people start to value the money so much they start pulling it out of circulation. I think we would get there quicker with all copper pennies than we would get there with nickels because it's easier to get the copper out. There's less to deal with. But either one's okay, and let me give you the honest answer. I have two great big huge Ziploc bags on my shelf, and in one is nickels and the other is pre-82 pennies, and when they get full, I dump them into a container that holds a bunch more of them. So I do it, but I don't do it as a real plan. It's just kind of an easy, simple thing to do. So there you go. That's the best answer I can give you on that one. Don't bet the farm on it, but it sure as hell doesn't hurt anything. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Roy. Um, I wanted to ask a question, and I'm not sure if you've uh, answered it before or not, but in light of the recent uh, economic problems we've had and the uh, evidently uh, China's rise in economic power, um, it leaves one feeling that um, their... Uh, Finances might be something to more or less focus with. For somebody who is low income, where would you think they should put their money as far as resources and preps? Uh, should it be mostly towards uh, finances like, uh, you know, uh, silver? Should it be like towards, like, food? Uh, not just basic storage, but like towards planting, um, you know, things like that. Where would you put your money if you were in a low income with what information we have today as far as the, the threats that are out there economically? Thank you for doing the show, Jack. Well, um, let me uh, let me start off with something. You have very astute observation about China and economic issues and how that affects us. Monday, tune in, and you're going to hear something that our Congress is doing about China and their manipulation of their own currency and how that ties in with the end game that I talked about earlier by holding off when they allow their currency to honestly float. And uh, maybe our Congress is actually paying attention to something for a change. I don't know that their solution will work, but tune in on that. China is a big threat globally on an economic level. Um Beyond that, though, the spirit of your question, it's interesting to look into these things about China and, and Russia and, and, and India and, and where we're going with the global economy. And if you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire and you want to buy futures in something, that's good things to know. But for us, the average person, and you specifically say low-income person, how do we take advantage of this? Or how do we, at least when we go, oh, crap, this sucks, protect ourselves? Um, when you say low-income, that's a relative term. To some people, a low-income family is somebody making, you know, one breadwinner making minimum wage, making under $20,000 a year for a family of two, three, or four. There's people in that situation. To some people, low income is, you know, family of four and $50,000. And where you live, those two families might live very similar based on geography. So I really don't know what low income means. But I'm going to tell you what I think about how anybody should prepare and you have to adjust the preparedness to your income level. And that's just all there is to it. We have to look at certain things. We know that we're going to need a roof over our head, food in our bellies, and water, and some cash at all times. 
And focusing on those is the way to go. And focusing on converting third-level wealth, as Chris Martinson calls it, to first-level and second-level wealth is a good idea. So the problem with low income is that, let's say I can save $50 a month. That's only $600 a year. Now, I should probably scrape, and I should probably do without some things until I can put $1,000 away, and I should do that really, really fast. And, I mean, I should do that. If I have to live on half my income and we have to suffer, I should have $1,000 in cash at all times, period. No matter how poor I think I am, I need to make that happen. Because the worse off I am, the more I need that little buffer, that little emergency fund, if it is needed. Okay? But once I have that, if I'm just saving $50 or $100 a month, and that's all I can manage... I can do that for 10 years, and I still don't have a lot of money. So I need something that's going to work harder with my money for me. So now if you do own property, it is a good investment to put it into long-term food-producing items on your property, whether it's small livestock, whether it's perennial plantings, uh, and anything you can do to enhance that property, like to talk to the guy earlier about with improving water on the property. These are the things to invest in. And the less you have, but if you at least have a place, invest in that place. If times turn around for you and you, you kind of move up in the world and you decide you want more and you want to sell it and you get ahead, all the things you did are going to make it sell better. If times get tougher for you and you're stuck there, you have everything you need being provided to you, or at least a big portion of what you need being provided to you, and tough times get easier to handle. To me, there is nothing better that a human being can do for themselves in this country right now than stake a nice claim on land and make that land produce for them. Stay, if you're going to buy land... Stay the hell away from highways, not just because of a bug-out situation and the zombies and all that other nonsense. Because of easements and eminent domain. Stay away from highways, stay away from state highways, county roads and things like that, you're probably fine. But major state highways and major interstates, you got to stay the hell away from those things. I mean, at least a mile. Because you don't know what they're going to do on an interstate, at least a mile. They're going to take a mile and a half here along I-35 for this stupid Trans-Texas Corridor. Um, with the state highway, I mean, you're looking at least, you probably want to be at least a quarter mile to, to avoid easement uh, coming in with eminent domain because you don't want to put all this work into a place and have somebody that doesn't value it, some bureaucrat give you a price on it and say this is what you're going to get or we're going to throw you out, right? So, But, I mean, that's the big thing I can say. My other thing is if you really are low income, do everything you can right now to increase your income. Whether you do it through self-employment, through your own business, through taking a second job, through delivering pizzas, to, to shovel and shit, I don't care what it is. Right now, as bad as it is, there is still there are still ways to go out there and make some money. And you need to see today as an opportunity. And you need to seize that opportunity. And whatever you think is holding you back, I hope you listen to yesterday's show. It's only you allowing it to. Now, I understand. I think sometimes people think I'm cold-hearted. There are people that have been physically injured or something like that, and they can't work. I understand. But the vast majority of people that think they're held back and they can't do better, you can. You just have to ask new questions. You can't keep doing the same shit you've done your whole life. You've got to start looking for new opportunities, new answers. You have to look internally for the answers from yourself. But it is amazing... If you can fit, I don't care what your income is. 
I don't care what it is. But if you can figure out to be relatively happy on that income, and you can increase your income by $200 a month over that, and you don't try to spend it before you have it, you actually use it to invest in your life, it is amazing what you can do from that point forward. But, again, I understand low income, so you're not going to be throwing a bunch of solar panels on the roof of your house tomorrow or anything, but the things that I'm personally going to invest in are the things that I can comfortably recommend that people invest in. One, I will continue to buy small amounts of silver, probably for the rest of my life or until it's such time that it was a good idea to do so, and I need to start using it. I will invest in anything I can to conserve or produce energy. I will invest in my land to make it produce for me. I will invest in tools that I will be able to use for the rest of my life. And I definitely will, until the day that I see otherwise, I will always save some cash and have cash available to me. And then anything after, now I can look at if I'm going to have a retirement account and I'm going to invest in some 401k stuff and some conventional paper assets and, you know, maybe I, I don't buy stocks at a certain period of time and other periods of times I'm willing to be kind of exposed to that because there is a place for those conventional investments. But you take care of your own first. That's a country value. That's a rural value. And then so many people have that rural value and they'll do anything for a family member. They don't understand that includes them. And that means that all of the resources you do have, you build a, you know, a fortress around your homestead first with that. Because that's the thing that doesn't get taken away from you. And put some insurance on it. I don't care how low income you are. Because since you're putting so much into it, if you lose it, because there's people that have houses that have been handed down from the family, they're low income people, but they own some land, and they don't have a mortgage, they ain't had a mortgage for 50 years on that property. My grandfather's house, you know, he told me, yeah, I paid it off as soon as I came home from World War II. I, we'd saved enough money up, and, and grandmother was working in the factory, and we paid it off. And I said, Grandpa, what was your mortgage? And he said, $1,350. I, I, I couldn't believe it, you know. Even as a little kid, I couldn't believe that. So that house, for instance, has been sitting there since 1946 without a mortgage. And a lot of people in those situations don't have any insurance on their property because the mortgage company doesn't require it. Insure your property. That's an investment. Because Insure against fire, insure against flood, insure against vandalism. Insure your property. And, and insure it for a value that's higher than you think you need because it's going to cost more to replace than you think it would. And it's a cheap, it's a cheap form of insurance. Property insurance only seems expensive when they put it on top of principal and interest and taxes. Take away the principal and interest, and all of a sudden it's not that much money. And with that, I'm getting ready to wrap up. Folks, again, uh, I did this show a couple days early for you to make sure you'd have a Friday show. Uh, but I do want you to keep calling in, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Call the Survival Podcast. Leave your one- to two-minute message. I'll try to answer it. Just kind of going back on the, the last question again, and, and more of a general thing for everybody. Folks, this is an opportunity. Times are not as bad as they're telling you they are. There is either a check on inflation or a minor deflation right now. You call it whatever you want to, whatever makes you comfortable. There is opportunity right now. There are companies that are still hiring some people. Some of the jobs suck. Some of them don't pay very well. Sometimes you might have to work eight hours and come home and work two or three more in some part-time crap, and it sucks. But the people that knuckle down and do this now, there's a false recovery coming. 
things are about to get better. Um, I started to doubt that for a while. My more intense analysis of the situation says my original uh, belief was right. Work really hard in the downtime and ride the up. Be prepared, though. Don't let the thing sucker you. Don't get suckered in when it happens. It's coming. I can feel it now. I can see it. And uh, we're going to see different things in 2011, 2012, 2013. They're going to look better. Take every opportunity you can along the way and know that during that period of time where things are getting better, the cost of things is going to start going up. That's going to be part of what makes it look better. They're going to pull off this next inflation bubble. And eventually the bust at the end of this one is going to be really bad. And again, tune in on Monday. Wait do you hear what our Congress is doing in response to China's manipulation of their currency to give themselves an unfair trade advantage? And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living